Welcome to Shit List. That's Donna Helmuth. That's Chris Kitts. We're the movie podcast that dives into the grossest, most shocking films ever made, and we tell you all about them. We dig through the shit so you don't have to. Donna, how are you doing this week? I'm pretty good. It's been a super busy week, which has left me with not thinking a lot about the horrors of daily reality, so... (laughs) Always nice to be distracted. I did watch Possum right after we watched the movie for this week, and it was extremely good. You recommended it to me, so I finally watched it, and it is genuinely really, like, horrifying. So that was a really good watch. The creature design is so good. It's nasty. It is really... It's it's not, like, nasty in the way that I would want to include it on our list. It's not gross, but it is extremely well done. Yeah, friends, if you are ever looking for what is essentially the Scottish Babadook, Possum is incredible. It has a really horrifying creature in it. There is some, like, implied sexual abuse, but there is nothing on screen. There is a scene that looks like it is going to be sexual abuse and does not become it. It is an incredible look at monsters as the embodiment of our trauma, very similarly to the Babadook. And it is phenomenal extremely well done and the the main character is played by an actor from prometheus if i recall correctly and i feel like he is like a kind of a character actor because he has a very unique appearance he looks like a muppet with his frown yes he does like he has a very muppet face so i was like oh it's the guy from prometheus but he looks totally different it also has very good sound design the sound design actually reminds me a lot of lars von trier's antichrist or like a little bit of sinister maybe even yes i thought of sinister a lot while watching that movie just the like slow moving like crawling music atmosphere very well done phenomenal highly recommend go see possum i'm pretty sure it's on prime yeah i saw it on prime so how are you i am well i did not become a magical shit angel this week (laughs) and that's really all we can ask for But a dear friend of ours, Emrys, did turn me on to the existence of a line-for-line, scene-for-scene ASMR remake of Jerry Seinfeld's B-movie. Oh my god. I haven't watched it yet. I will be watching it probably this weekend. And just the mere existence of this thing is incredible. So since I've mentioned it, we'll just put it in the show notes. Yeah, is it incredible or is it deeply cursed? (laughs) A little column A, a little column B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> B. You like jazz? Column B. You like jazz? Oh, man. I had to explain B-movie to somebody recently, and I was like, hey, there's a part where they're at an apiary, and it's implied that the ethical keeping of bees is equivalent to the Holocaust. Yeah. There's a lot going on in B-movie. Oh, there's a lot to unpack in that movie. There's, like, a lot of themes of, like, worker exploitation and seize the means of production, but seizing the means of production devastates the world. So there's a lot of conflicting themes. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, friends, B-movie is bad. So that's all that's new with me (laughs) is that that exists. Yep. Any news? Any announcements? Yeah, no news. I did my taxes. That's news. I'm doing my taxes this weekend. Everyone, do your taxes. April 15th is the day. It is legal theft by the government. (laughs) It is. 
It's legal theft. We're all going to get fucked by the existence of these stimulus checks from last year. What really fucked me was um, I got married and bought a house in a very short period of time. Neither of those things did literally anything for me because you can't really write those things off unless you're making a ton of money. Yep. Those, those credits have been removed and I get less breaks for having student loans. So um, thanks. Thanks, tax code. Super cool of you to completely fuck me like that. Down. Yeah. Love it. I guess that leads us into our movie this week. Yep. Yeah, what are we doing this week, Chris? <laughs> We're doing a movie about taxes and tax codes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we are talking about 2007's The Poughkeepsie Tapes, uh, written and directed by John Eric Dowdle. Mm-hmm. Before we dive into this movie, I want to touch on some content warnings. I'm actually going to break this movie's content warnings down into things that actually are depicted on screen and things that are mentioned but are not shown on screen. Good call. Yeah, I I don't know if it's really necessary, but I would rather be more considerate than less. Yeah. So the, the things that happen on screen in this film include abduction, which does include minors, physical, emotional, and psychological torture, some gore, gaslighting, forced drugging slash chloroforming, and pretty egregious Stockholm Syndrome. There's also some pretty misogynistic language as well. Off screen, we are informed of sexual assault, pedophilia, necrophilia, and genital mutilation. I also want to add that this film includes a segment that dives into the way police abuse their power and often exploit it, especially with regards to sex workers. And while the character that this section revolves around is ultimately found to have not been guilty of specific crimes, I do recognize that the exploitation of institutionalized violent power on the behalf of the police can be really upsetting for some folks. So I do want to mention that as well. Does that sound like I got everything? I would add that there is like a kind of off-screen suicide at the end. Yes, actually, that's a really good point. There is an off-screen suicide. There is also an off-screen forced abortion, which I kind of didn't realize until I was reading more about the movie. So I guess we'll get into that. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that when we get to it. I didn't realize it until I was reading other people's synopses of the film. Okay. So... That leads us into the Poughkeepsie tapes. The IMDb summary reads, In an abandoned house in Poughkeepsie, New York, murder investigators uncover hundreds of tapes showing decades of a serial killer's work. It is written and directed by John Eric Dowdle, who frequently works with his brother Drew Dowdle as the Brothers Dowdle. (laughs) The Brothers Dowdle. (laughs) That sounds like a fucking Woody Allen film. Oh, uh, well. Or like a Wes Anderson. Maybe Wes Anderson is who I was thinking of. A little more Wes Anderson-y. Yes, sounds like a Wes Anderson film. Some of the other movies John Eric Dowdle has done, Quarantine, which is the American remake of Wreck. Really? Same director. He also did Devil, which I believe was produced by M. Night Shyamalan, and he also did As Above, So Below. What? Yep. I was going to ask you if this director had done anything else, and I am blown away by these facts. (laughs) Right? I honestly had no idea either until I started doing my research, and I was like, I like all of these movies except for Devil, which I didn't see because I swear to God it's about like an evil elevator. Yeah, that's what, basically. (laughs) But I really like Quarantine, and I really enjoyed As Above, So Below, and despite the fact they're all found footage, I never put two and two together that they're all the same director yeah never would have thought like i none of these movies aside from being found footage have anything to do with each other and they're all like radically different in terms of content and quality 
right? That's that's kind of how I felt too. Like they don't feel like they're all by the same person even a little bit. Yeah. The tagline for this film is the last thing his victim saw, ellipsis, was his camera. Uh, okay. Which I hate. That's an awful tagline, Jesus. Like, okay, I guess, maybe. I mean, it was there. It's bad. It's bad. So part of me wants to hold off on talking about the box office information until after we discuss the film. Okay. There is no box office information for the Poughkeepsie tapes. Despite the existence of promotional materials and despite the fact that trailers for this film played in front of Frank Darabont's The Mist in 2006 and 2007, Mm -hmm. this film was never actually released in theaters. Oh. We're going to talk later about how that really influences my reaction to this film. Okay. So there's no box office information. It is about an hour and 21 minutes, including all of the the credits. Credits is the Mm -hmm. word I want. I like movies. (laughs) Movies. Movies. So had you seen the Poughkeepsie tapes before we watched it? No. And if I recall correctly, when you first watched it, I think we were living together. I think it was around college era, but um, I was interested. I found it intriguing and I really thought the trailer looked really cool, but it just, like, I was never driven to actually watch it. Was there like a reason or were you just kind of like, nah, it's found footage? No particular reason. It wasn't readily available and it's one of those movies where it's like, I wouldn't normally sit down to watch this unless someone had strongly recommended it to me or it was just sitting around on Netflix. So neither of those things happened. So I never watched it. Gotcha. You had seen this, yeah? Yes. I would say I probably saw the Poughkeepsie tapes for the first time around 2012. Then I watched it again in 2014. And I actually haven't seen it since because what I didn't really understand at the time I watched it in 2014 is that my wife, Emily, who I love dearly, is really afraid of home invasion. And this movie really made her uncomfortable. Yeah. So I haven't watched it since just because the main place we watch movies is in our living room. And there's like no way I could put this on Mm -hmm. and not have her walk in and see it. Which is not to say like I'm forbidden from seeing it. It's just I'm not an asshole. Yeah. You don't want to like lock your wife out of the living room. (laughs) Yeah. Like I could always go watch this somewhere in the attic like I did this weekend. But Mm -hmm. it's not like I have a desperate need to watch the Poughkeepsie tapes every weekend. (laughs) Leave me alone with the poughkeepsie tapes it's important (laughs) i have important work to do oh my god no that was a bad time (laughs) no it's a bad time so uh, what were your perceptions going into this i knew that it was found footage and again that trailer that trailer was really exciting to me i thought it looked really nasty like very body horror kind of led me to believe that there was going to be like like a lot of body horror um psychological horror gross basement stuff torture etc be that kind of movie just very nasty nothing about it honestly led me to believe that it would be the movie that it actually is is that a good thing or a bad thing probably a bad thing <laughs> okay all right well then before we dive into the breakdown of the movie is there is there anything you want to throw out there not really like i have a lot to say about this movie and its quality and the way it very firmly directs its audience okay but we will get into that as we break it down so take it away all right so 
it is time for our scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of the Poughkeepsie tapes. Before I get into it, I want to explain that this film is broken down into an introductory sequence and then seven subsequent parts, so I'm going to break the film down that way as well. I just think it's going to make the most sense and sort of flow the best. This is a film that is presented as a sort of 48 hours slash unsolved mysteries slash cold case files yeah cold case files i survived sort of tv crime show but we'll touch on it later i would say it's very weird because it's presented like the kind you would find on like a major three network sort of situation like an nbc cbs but it includes content you would not see on those channels yeah which is probably not to the film's credit but so this is presented very seriously as a, a legitimate documentary. The killer in this movie is never actually named beyond the, the credits in which he is named Edward Carver. So I'm going to refer to him as Ed, just so that I'm not saying the killer over and over again. And mm -hmm. he does ultimately give his name as Ed, but we never have it confirmed. There are like 937 different FBI agents and cops in this movie, and I am not <laughs> naming all of them. So the only ones... Yeah anyone really needs to know are Joseph Danvers, who is played by a man named Dennis Garber, and Jim Foley, who is played by someone I believe named Bill Williamson or something. I'll, I'll look it Billions. up. Billiams. Billiams, <laughs> who plays a, a cop named Jim Foley. So the film opens on a cemetery, a funeral procession, and a ceremony intercut with footage of a like young preteenish girl with braces. I'd probably put her at looking like 13 or 14 in the footage we're seeing. What we will learn is that this is a woman named Cheryl Dempsey, played by Stacy Chbosky. Yeah, C-H-B-O-S-K-Y. Chbosky. Chbosky, yeah. Then we cut to night vision footage, and the camera that is filming the sequence has been left on the ground, and we see a rope pull a corpse from the grave with no explanation. And then we get a title sequence with some groovy bass... landscape footage that actually reminded me a little bit of some of the aerial footage from Silence of the Lambs. Yes, definitely. It was very reminiscent. I'm glad it wasn't just me. I was like, this has to be intentional. This feels yeah. very overt. There is a lot about this movie that apes on Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, there really is. It does not get there, but it tries. <laughs> I kind of don't think I noticed that until this this particular watch through either. Yeah. Partially, I think I watched the Silence of the Lambs more in the past like four years than I ever have in my life. So mm. I have more context now. So so this takes us into part one, which is called The Tapes. We see a house where the tapes were found, and we are introduced to the landlord, whose name is Alice. She explains that a terrible person once lived in this house. We then get a montage of FBI agents with billions of names that are discussing that they didn't know what they were dealing with when these crimes were being carried out until they found the tapes. They knew that there was a killer, they knew he was doing some brutal shit, but they didn't really understand the extent of what they were sort of getting into until they completed the raid on this house and found the tapes. One of them remarks that he thinks torturing and murdering turns him on, and that the tapes that they found are essentially his equivalent of homemade porn. Alice shows us a closet where we learn that these, you know, mysterious tapes were found. She motions to the basement, kind of knowingly in this sequence. 
we can assume pretty immediately there's a lot of shit that went down in this basement it's very subtle Mm -hmm. and then another fbi agent notes that multiple bodies including a couple with a baby were buried in the backyard of this house this explanation is intercut with crime scene and body bag footage she's kind of walking us the viewer around the yard during the sequence and we're seeing kind of like the the cordoned off plots of land and things like that and then we get a long shot of over 800 vhs tapes and this fbi agent slash analyst explains you know there are over 800 and that of these the vast majority are of this girl who we have been introduced to sort of previously named cheryl dempsey how are you feeling at this part of the film uh (laughs) so like i said the the trailer to this movie does not reveal anything about the fact that it is mockumentary style like a early 2000s true crime tv show and that really like took me aback because i was not expecting that i wasn't really expecting to be walked through the events of this serial killer's actions by like expert testimonials and then as we go through this part i (laughs) there's so many dutch angles There's a lot of Dutch angles on these professionals and these FBI agents. For no reason. For no reason. It's a really weird use of a Dutch angle. Very late 90s, early 2000s style. It's bad. (laughs) Do you want to explain to our listeners what a Dutch angle is in case they don't know? It's just like a cockeyed camera angle that puts the subject on just a not level angle. It's typically used to like make viewers feel unsettled. Exactly. So it's not something you would use in a crime documentary. It's really not. Like, you should, like, why? Why are we using Dutch angles when we're interviewing investigators? <laughs> Very weird. And to boot, the, the expert testimonies are badly acted. I think the one dude who's the guy that goes through all of the tapes. Bad. He's a really bad actor. And it, it pulled me right out of the movie. I'm just like, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And then the language that these professionals and investigators use, it's not correct. They try really hard to get it right. There are some things that they apply correctly in terms of the phrase disorganized killers and like some of the serial killer stuff. But we have consumed so much true crime content at this point. I've watched a lot of cold case files in the recent past and they just sound like they don't know what they're talking about it's rough i was like you're wrong (laughs) you're bad at your job no one would say this about a serial killer and it gets to the point where like they keep saying how he develops his skills and how he goes from being a pretty rough start to basically being a fucking cannibal lector mastermind and i was like yeah this sucks no one is perfect and it Like, it made me crazy because these testimonials should be much more professional than they are. And they interject a lot of their personal feelings here. I now really want a Pobody's Nerfict poster, but of, like, (laughs) a man in a Venetian mask. Seriously. So if you are a graphic designer and (laughs) you like us, please feel free to make us a Poughkeepsie Tapes-themed Pobody's Nerfict (laughs) inspirational poster. Uh, One of the things I really loved that I never thought about how heinously unrealistic it is, is when that film analyst, bad actor, talks about how he brought some of the videotapes home. Yeah, like, what? No. I'm like, no. That's illegal. (laughs) That's illegal. And your wife should never be able to just watch this shit. 
Like, that's not yeah. okay. That's That would never fucking happen. Oh, it was bad. I don't think I noticed that until this watch through either, and I was like, Ooh. It, like, almost made me laugh at how bad this yeah. dude was. So we get some more assorted interviews with FBI officers. Uh, one of them explains that at any given time, 25 to 50 active serial killers are in America alone. Uh, that's actually pretty accurate. According to Scientific American in 2014, that is what the FBI estimated. So yay, they got that one right. Yay. I think it's the uh, the shitty acted FBI analyst also explains that, quote, over a hundred hours of weird balloon stuff was found on these tapes. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> And then we see an example of a woman in her underwear, like, blowing up a balloon for the the man who is filming this off screen, who we will realize very quickly is our killer Ed. Then you see her, like, sitting on it, bouncing on it. The man off camera ultimately, like, screams at her to pop the balloon. And then I made a note here, because this is where I live on the internet. I just wrote, this is pretty accurate to the contents of balloon fetishes. Yeah, no, I thought that too. I was just like, oh, it's just, you know, it's a balloon fetish. There's nothing weird about this. Yes. This is pretty standard and tame, as far as I'm concerned. So from this point forward in the film, anytime we see, like, grainy VHS footage, it's, we know at this point it is... From this collection of over 800 tapes from Ed, our killer. This takes us into part two called First Blood because somebody really likes Rambo. (laughs) I thought that too. (laughs) That's got to be intentional. Yeah. So we are introduced to an FBI profiler who is retired and is now teaching. He's explaining to his class that after the contents of his coming lesson, three of the students will go home and decide that FBI profiling is not for them. I feel like this was ripped directly from The Silence of the Lambs as well. Yeah, I agree. Like, this is some Jack Crawford shit. It really felt like they were trying to build a Hannibal Lecter here, but it they just missed the mark really badly. And part of that is a lot of the testimonials feel low budget, even in just, like, their production, the way they look. But also, because of the way we see this footage unfolds, it's not clever or smart. There's no clinical procedural that would make this scary. The way Silence of the Lambs makes it extremely clinical and step-by-step, like, this is what we're looking for, these are the stakes, like, that kind of thing. We don't really get that here. Yeah. Then we get an FBI agent who is sort of just speculating that at some point in the killer's life, a switch flipped, and now he's gonna do a murder, (laughs) and that the next vulnerable person he sees is gonna be dead. This is never verified in fiction, and in general, very little is ever revealed regarding Ed, the killer. I've seen criticism on both sides of the fence that say this is both a good thing and a bad thing, because had it been further explained, it probably would not have been good. But at the same time, people sometimes really want to understand why killers do things, even though sometimes they're isn't an explanation so i can see that kind of coin falling either heads or tails for folks so we get footage of a suburban yard green grass toys etc taken from the dark interior of ed's car we see him getting out there's a girl in the yard playing with a doll and a police officer notes shortly after this that her name is jennifer gorman ed approaches jennifer in the yard this is pretty bold we hear cars passing by him in the background so yeah it's broad daylight and he just walks right the fuck up to her And no one sees this somehow, but he greets her, he says he likes her dolls, he asks what their names are, and she tells him Susie is one of the dolls' names. She says, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers, and Ed replies, you're not supposed to have bad manners either, and I just wrote, ooh, gaslighting them early. Yeah. So Ed asks if she wants to see what it looks like through the camera, and as he turns the camera around to show her, we hear a crack, 
we can presume that he has hit Jennifer over the head with the camera, and then he begins to run. We can infer he puts the body in the back of his car before driving off. And I just keep thinking about the fact we could hear cars in the background the entire time. Uh, yeah. No one saw that. Yeah. No one. No one said anything. No one saw anything. Hard to believe. So we hear the 911 call that Jennifer's mother makes after her daughter has disappeared. And we hear the 911 dispatch explaining that you have to wait 24 hours to pass, which is not true because anybody who does a true crime typically knows that the first 48 hours are the most important when it comes to missing persons cases and that the odds of locating someone who has gone missing dramatically decreases after the first 48 hours. There's a whole goddamn TV show named about it. (sighs) Yeah. Also, I want to make a note here that the timeline of this movie is so vague and so hard to follow. This kidnapping occurs, I think, mid-80s. Yeah. And the course of this movie takes place from, like, around this time up until, like, the early 2000s. So we're looking at a killer's path over 15, 16 years, and you do not get that fe- that yet sense of time in this movie at all. It's incredibly confusing. Yeah, there is no sense of time except for when they randomly and with no explanation just, like, drop a Ted Bundy in there, which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. (laughs) That was just like, wait, what? Excuse me? Yeah, or when they're just like, and then 9-11 happened, and it's like, wait, I thought this was happening in the 2000s. What? Yeah, it's very confusing. So we get that 911 call. We get an interview with Jennifer's parents, Cynthia and Joel Gorman, who say that the pain of losing your child never goes away. And at this point, Cynthia, the mother, notes that uh, when her daughter's body was found, she was found to have been sexually assaulted. Yay. Pretty fucked up. This leads us into part three called Getting Better. And like, I've seen this movie like twice. This is the third time I've seen it. And in my brain, I like couldn't understand why it was called Getting Better at first. And I was like, who's getting better at what? yeah (laughs) so now we're getting footage of a couple who is talking to ed from within their car he is standing outside of it and is explaining he's having car trouble this is big ted bundy energy yes if it's not directly inspired by ted bundy it's gotta be subconscious yeah the couple invites him into their car he gets in and he asks if he can film because he's making a movie about his little trip (laughs) we learn that their names are fred and jeanette anderson he introduces himself as ed and he tells them that if they take this specific upcoming exit they can drop him off at a nearby gas station they kind of try to talk to him and ask him where he's from and he sort of avoids it and just says he's not local we see him pan the camera down to a zipped up kind of duffel bag at his feet we hear some rustling and then we see him strike fred in the back of his head We see the car kind of tumbling as he's trying to breast control of the car from now unconscious Fred. And then we cut to a close-up of Jeanette being chloroformed. After that, we sort of smash cut to news footage that's reporting their disappearance. This is the point where we learn that they're from Poughkeepsie, New York. And this is where we get the FBI agent who's like, the killer is finding that he's somebody who knows he's good at what he does. That's murder. And he's practicing and researching to be able to do what he does, get away with it, and even film it. And then we get the FBI analyst trying to show you how he must have had to film the scene of himself chloroforming Jeanette. And I'm just like, stop. 
But yeah, this is the point where they're outright being like, this guy's a fucking genius. My God. And I'm like, no, he's not. This has been done before. This isn't anything crazy. This dude has flaws and faults that you could catch him on if you just stop stroking each other's dicks about it. Like, it was so frustrating. And this is where they also classify him as a mixed killer who plots his kills methodically but mutilates in a fashion more indicative of a disorganized killer to try and throw the police off his trail. I was just like, come on. Yeah. And they say it so many times. Yeah, they do. It's like, we know this word. This word means things. Then we get more footage from Ed where we see him trying to wake up Jeanette. And it's like a close-up on her face, and he's using this really weird, sincerely unnerving, high-pitched whisper. Yeah, uh, He's saying, you'll love this over and over, but we don't see what this is. And this is something I mentioned earlier. On both the Wikipedia synopsis and on a couple of other synopses I found, they say that at this point, Ed has already performed a C-section on Jeanette, killed the fetus, and then implanted her husband's head in her womb, sewn her back up, and so this is the implication of the couple and child that were found in Ed's yard. Wake up. Wake up. Come on, wake up. Come on, wake up. I have a surprise for you. I'm not sure what to make of that because we do get a very brief glimpse like he pans down as she's waking up and we see like the head in her body in her abdomen oh i didn't notice that yeah you see the face in the cavity of her lower body it's nasty but we only see it for a second are you talking about the the like image of the corpse uh not the corpse but it was his footage of her waking her up And as she's waking up, he pans down and for a split second, you see it. I'm going to have to watch that again because I didn't see that. And so when I was reading this, I was like, what? Yeah, I think the like it's he clearly has like opened her up and shoved her husband's head inside of her, which is definitely a level of horrifying. But at no point did any of the investigators say that this woman had been pregnant. Okay. Or that there was, like, something already there. So I was very, I I saw that synopsis as well and was, like, very confused in the movie because there was no mention of her being pregnant, but the cesarean had definitely happened. Okay. I thoroughly missed that. So I was like, what? I'm gonna have to watch that scene again. So this is where we cut to the FBI profiling course where we see the mixed reactions of the students. One woman is, like, visibly uncomfortable and on the verge of a panic attack and our totally not Jack Crawford is just like, nope, nope, you'll keep teaching a class now? Yeah. So you're having a bad time. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> this also made me think a bit of um, Mindhunter. Mm. And, like, that. this felt like a Mindhunter It really course. did, yeah. <laughs> Way before Mindhunter happened and worse yeah. than Mindhunter. Oh, for sure. So we learned the remains of the couple were found in Pittsburgh. The corpse was female, had a man's head, presumably Fred's, placed in its abdomen. We cut to another FBI agent explaining that there are very few direct paths between Poughkeepsie, New York, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And sort of explaining that between that, the distance a car like the Andersons can travel on X amount of gas, 
and the number of abandoned gas stations along the way kind of tipped the FBI off onto where they should be trying to source security camera footage. This leads to the first footage of Ed fueling up at a gas station, and then we cut from this whole situation back to the FBI profiling course, and not Jack Crawford is like, what do you notice, children? And one of the students observes the killer is using sign language at the gas station camera and is saying Red House, indicating where uh, ultimately the police will find the second known body. And then an FBI agent notes that this footage is from before the Andersons were killed. Yeah. Also, like, fueling into this idea that this is the perfect killer and he's extremely smart, he's a mastermind, he's doing all this stuff, and he knew exactly what he was doing the whole time. And I'm just like, all right, cool. He's a fucking shithead who killed some people and knew where he was gonna bury the bodies. Eat shit, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Like, fuck you. (laughs) You're so special. You're so very special. It makes, yeah, this, this felt like a, like a Gary stew of a serial killer. I was like, this, I can't get down with this at all. This fucking sucks. Yeah, yeah, Gary stew is a good way of putting it. Gary stew, for friends who don't read TV tropes religiously, is the male equivalent of a Mary Sue, which is just a self-insert. Yeah. Ugh. So we learned that this second body that I guess was killed first, but was found second, question mark, question mark, question mark, was Elizabeth Jackson, who was abducted from Jackson County, New York. Her head and hands were found there. Her other remains were found throughout a bunch of different counties. I kind of wondered if this was supposed to like be a weird allusion to Edmund Kemper, who like put head and hands in the garbage disposal and all kinds of weird stuff. But yeah, I've noted like there's some similarities with like Obviously, the Ted Bundy reference, I think there's Ed an Ed Kemper reference. I think there's also a BTK. And weirdly, I'll, I'll mention this later, it's a lot like the East Area Rapist, too. Mm. He has, like, big Joseph D'Angelo energy. Yeah. Especially when he does the high-pitched voice to get the, the woman oh, to shit. wake up. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. It, it struck me really hard, and I was just like, Ugh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and man. later on, there's the, the home invasion, and then the strong insinuation that he is a cop. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Holy shit. That's actually kind of cool. It's pretty creepy. I'm not gonna lie. So in this whole section where they're talking about Elizabeth Jackson's body, the various FBI agents are explaining that this whole thing of dunking parts of her in different locations is likely an attempt to leverage the lack of communication between counties and jurisdictions and the time it would take for different counties and different police precincts to connect the kills to one another. Which is kind of smart, I guess question mark whatever (laughs) and then we get like this weird quick shot of ed dismembering a body off screen and then some medical examiners like circle jerking each other about how he uses a mix of items so that it all looks like different people he's very special he's a very special boy and we love him very much yes exactly he's he's real special i also think that the interspersed images of him like dismembering bodies this part it goes by pretty quickly but i also found that it just doesn't look real like the 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 props are obviously props, so... It, yeah, it's got it some really... spirit Halloween energy. 
Yeah. So this takes us into part four, which is called Cheryl Dempsey. Then we just get a whole bunch of footage. Some of it is of like some kind of college campus focused on a woman in a green jacket leaving. We can assume because of the title card that this is Cheryl Dempsey. We see nighttime footage of some kind of scanner or radio device that Ed is using to listen into Cheryl's cell phone calls. And mid-call, she says she feels something bad is going to happen because things have been too good. We get more footage of her just sort of walking around, and it's obvious that this is to edify the fact that Ed has thoroughly premeditated everything he's going to do, evaluating her daily routines, that whole thing. And then we cut to a door inside a house that is being slowly opened, and we put together pretty quickly that Ed is in Cheryl's house. It's clear that someone is home. Some of the lights are on, others are off. He steps into the kitchen and turns the lights on very, very briefly, kind of to get a look. So off on, less than a second, and we see him take a knife from the knife block in the kitchen and go upstairs. The lights are on up here, and I was just like, this is daring, my dude. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, Somebody is in the shower. Ed moves into the bedroom. He uses the knife to pick up an article of clothing and toss it. It looks like a bra. Doesn't really matter. And then I couldn't quite tell what happened here. It seemed like maybe he bumped into something or the door downstairs was opening. But either way, there's a bonk and Cheryl calls out to Tim. Shortly after, Tim comes upstairs, asks what she wants to eat. Cheryl's in the shower. Tim is standing in the doorway talking to her and we see Ed hide. When Tim leaves, Ed plants the camera in her room, throws some of her clothes on the floor, and hides in her closet. And this is the scene that when I feel like being a huge asshole to my wife, Emily, I ask her why her clothes are on the floor. (laughs) So, everyone, I'm a bad man, and I do bad things. You're the worst. I am the worst. So, Tim goes downstairs, Uh, Ed is hiding in the closet. We can actually, in this scene, and I did think this was kind of cool, Tim comes back and is talking to Cheryl after she's gotten out of the shower, and we can kind of see Ed's mask in the crack of the closet door. Mm. It's really, really, like, washed out, but I I did think that shot was really cool. Yeah. Uh, And so he's listening to them talking, and Cheryl asks Tim why he moved her clothes, and Tim says he didn't. Because he didn't. We see them canoodle weird and then abruptly cut to darkness and ed comes out of the closet retrieves the camera and heads downstairs where we see that tim and cheryl have pretty much fallen asleep while watching a movie they start to wake up the entire time they're talking we see from ed's perspective he's like hovering over them and behind them just out of reach brazen as shit fuck this guy yeah cheryl goes upstairs tim goes into the kitchen ed follows tim and knocks him out and we hear a gasp ed turns around sees cheryl realizes he has been seen follows her and we get like this scene where he drops the camera and you see the silhouette of him knocking her out with some kind of object ed uh goes back and we see him hit tim again and then sort of cut to an interview with cheryl's friend kim who is explaining that cheryl expressed having a weird feeling she was being watched before her disappearance Ooh. So we then cut to footage of Cheryl hogtied on a table while Ed is in a Venetian mask berating her and asking her her name. When she says her name is Cheryl Dempsey, he beats the shit out of her and tells her her name is Slave. And this repeats until Cheryl finally repeats in turn that her name is Slave. And I think this is the point where you said, this guy looks like a nerd. (laughs) Yes, I did. 
So first, I just want to say that the entire home invasion sequence was legitimately horrifying. And I found that to be the scariest part of the movie. Everything about it is deeply disturbing. And if it had been like, almost if this was a standalone, like short, it, yeah, it, it in itself could have been its own horror movie if it was not weighed down by the bullshit that the rest of this movie throws at us. It's very well done. Very creepy. Like, ugh, ugh. Unfortunately, I feel like that is undercut with the immediately following scene because we were seeing her being more or less brainwashed into being his slave. And I was just like, you see him in the light in the basin. You see the full like Venetian mask and you see that he's wearing a cape and you see that his hair is like not really washed. It's very unkempt. I was just like, I've seen this fucking guy at like the corner of like dungeons and shit like that. He's a huge fucking like simp ass nerd. Yeah. I he, he sucks. Like, uh, I know I <laughs> I know who this guy is and I hate it. I also don't think his acting is particularly good and it's really hard to buy into his like strong arming all of these women and beating the shit out of a dude basically beating him to death. I j- it's really hard for me to buy it because he seems like a fucking nerd. <laughs> yeah, I said to my partner James that he looks like every dude I've turned down at an anime convention. Yeah, it's really hard to buy this whole fucking like fandom of the opera bitch ass shit. I just can't. Like it sucks. So if and when we make merchandise, can they say Phantom of the Opera, bitch ass <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Hey, friends, if you'd buy that, let us know. <laughs> like, I was just so frustrated by this part, especially because they were building up to this, like, master killer, this ultimate sadist, this complete, like, awful creature. And it's just a fucking guy in a Venetian mask and a cape. So if you could recast this movie with, like, somebody who was on any level of list and not, like, the Q list or the L list, who do you want to play this killer? Oh, I'm just God. curious. Almost anyone else. <laughs> Honestly, like, you, you could get a real creep to do this. Someone who is lanky, but who has, like, the build, like, uh, who is athletic enough to look like they could take down a full-grown human being. Yeah. Because that's what he does. And, like, again, I'm going to bring up Joseph D'Angelo again. He was just a dude. But he was also a cop. He was also a bitch-ass dude. But he could take people down. So I'm kind of like, okay, whatever. He's he's kind of a dickhead-like nerd. But I don't know. It, it just, I could not buy into this whole shtick. Yeah. This is a guy who looks like he uses three-in-one shampoo, conditioner, body wash. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So we see that footage of Cheryl like hogtied with her arms and legs behind her back. And then we have an FBI investigator explaining that Tim was cut from his anus to his throat and his intestines were, quote, strewn around like they were Christmas tree lights. Whee! His genitals. Wee! <laughs> I'm here for that. His genitals had been removed and placed in a drawer. And they explained that because of the extremity of the scene and the damage to the corpse, the police kind of assumed that Cheryl had just been killed and dumped and they would find her body at some point. And they admit that retrospectively, they know Ed had intentionally crafted this murder scene to mislead them. Fuck y'all. 
Yeah, it's dumb. Then we get possibly my most despised minute and a half of footage that's ever been put on film, which is an interview with a man named Ethan who is an actor discussing Commedia dell'arte. Oh my god! (laughs) And he's discussing the use of masks to remove inhibitions and guilt guilt for one's actions, and he identifies Ed's chosen mask as that of a plague doctor, and I just wrote, I fucking hate this guy. Uh, this character went out of fashion hundreds of years ago. It's uh, the character Dottore Pest, the doctor of the plague. I hated that so much. Like it's so a, bad. It's wrong. It's, it's just wrong. It's like it's like that gif of Patrick Stewart just like looking at the camera and going acting, but it's like way fucking worse because it's some like weird local theater dude in medieval italian kind of clown makeup basically but it's not he just sort of has white on his chin yeah. and on his eyes <laughs> i don't know what he's doing and why does he exist why why does he exist why are people still like trying to act out medieval italian theater i just very question like why is this dude in poughkeepsie why what what's going yeah. on He's really bad. He's like, oh, he's a plague doctor. This character went out of fashion. And I was like, he wasn't a character. He was a fucking doctor. Yeah, it's extremely, like, a key misunderstanding about everything here. And also, he wasn't wearing a plague doctor mask. It's a Venetian mask wore during carnival in Venice. So it's less like, oh man, you have so many key points here entirely incorrect. And also, if you're going to make points about possible motivations and like the psychological aspect to this serial killer, why isn't it coming from a clinical psychologist about like, why did he remove the genitals and put them in a sock drawer? There's a lot that tells you about this person because of that action. Or even the use of the masks coming from, like you said, like a clinical physician or psychologist. Yeah. We could have gone there, but yeah. instead we've got this fucking Ethan we shit We got bag. this artiste. Ugh. A man of theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's how my mom used to say theater Aww, growing up. She would cute. say theater. Theater. And she tried to say, like, that's a thing that Tennessee people say. And I was like, I know other people from Tennessee and none they of them don't. say theater. <laughs> yeah. They also don't say ambulance, mom. <sighs> My mom's not listening to this. That's I hope not. I don't know why I'm addressing her. Yeah. Mom, if you're listening to this, stop. <laughs> stop. So, yeah, we get Ethan, an actor. Actor. And then we see Cheryl, again, footage from Ed's camera, standing with her arms bound behind her by chains hung from the ceiling in his basement. She is crying for her mother, and Ed tells her that he killed her mother and her family and that he is all she has left. And he instructs her to say that she's grateful and happy he killed her family. She refuses, so he grabs her by the hair and not waterboards, but I guess sort of dunks her head underwater until she does say she's grateful. And he just keeps repeating, you don't have parents, you're a slave. And this scene just sort of repeats Mm -hmm. until Cheryl says she didn't even like her family. She only likes him because he's the master and it pleases her to serve him. And this becomes a recurring line throughout the rest of the film. (laughs) Who do you like? Why? 
You want me to kill those people? Yes. I don't know. Yes, I don't know. Yes. That's why yes. I did it. I did it because of you. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Say it. Part of me feels like this is just one dude's excuse to like videotape his S&M sessions in his basement and make a movie out of it and uh, feel like a big man about beating up women. <laughs> Anybody who has been in the kinky community for any amount of time has met the dude who wants to be this dude. The dude who wants to be a master to like a harem of slaves. Yeah. It's never good. I don't like that guy. I've never liked that, that dude guy. dude always sucks. That dude also uses three-in-one shampoo, conditioner, body oil. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I've totally seen this guy in a dungeon before. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. So we cut to Redding, Pennsylvania. Hey! 30 hey. minutes away from us, where um, the Dempsey family lives. And we get footage from a press junket where Cheryl's mother is pleading for the killer to bring their daughter home. And then we get footage from Ed's camera that makes it clear that he not only attended this press junket, he approaches Cheryl's mother and asks, if there's anything I can do to help, all you have to do is ask. And then he just stands there like the fucking prick he is. And we watch Cheryl's mother realize in real time, this is him Mm -hmm. and that he is mocking her like the dick he is. And she says, I play that moment in my head over and over again. I knew it was him and I didn't stop him because I was scared. Because that is what happens to women in society. Society. We live in a society. We do live in a society. Society. (laughs) Society. (laughs) We also need to watch society at some point. Oh, we super do. I want butt people. Yeah. I can't wait. Have you seen it before? No, I haven't. Society is great. Yeah. So I think that's on our list. I added it to the list. (laughs) Okay, cool. Good, good. I need to see these weird butt people. It's so good. I'm glad we're going to watch that. So this scene kind of hurts. Like, I thought this was a good scene. Yeah. Then we get another shot of Sarah hanging from the ceiling and she's ball gagged. And Ed asks her, he basically asks, like, if I remove the ball gag, will you do something for me? And we see him, like, drop something at her feet. She says yes, and we realize it's a dress, and she puts on the dress, and then this, like, weird latex lady mask on top, and it's becoming abundantly clear, if it wasn't already, that basically Ed is destroying Cheryl's identity. He is turning her into his slave. She is not going to be Cheryl anymore. She is going to be this woman, this this object, this thing, this ideal to him. And, like, this is one of those parts where, like, I really appreciate this movie because I'm like, okay, yeah, like, I'm here for that flavor of depravity. But also, if the rest of the movie that surrounded it could be that cool, that'd be great. Yeah. This movie really, like, ripped the wool from my eyes. Or this this watch. Yeah. Wait. Were you going to say something? I was going to say, I liked the use of the latex masks. I thought it was very jarring and definitely, like, emblematic of how he is stripping these women of their their selves and their identities yeah i feel like this is also for some reason like one of the first times we realize that these crimes are happening in the early 90s yeah it it gets like mentioned offhandedly 
Yeah, um, there's a photo of her that's dated to, her last photo was dated to 1992. So she was kidnapped at some point shortly thereafter. Yes. And then we get more of the 4 million FBI agents who are discussing that serial killers adapt in about three different ways once they are getting increasing coverage in a given town. They either leave and go somewhere else, they take a break, or they keep going. And they say Ed never stopped, but he would ultimately change his M.O. so that he could throw the police off of his trail, which leads us into part five, a new M.O., We learn about the existence of the Water Street Butcher via the news and that sex workers in Poughkeepsie, New York aren't safe. And I'm only saying it that way because they present Poughkeepsie as this, like, hotbed of sex work in this section. Yeah. Which, like, just, I don't know, if you're a sex worker in Poughkeepsie, please tell me if I'm wrong, but, like, what? Hard to say. Like... All I really know of Poughkeepsie is that it's a very small, like, not entirely thriving town. Yeah. It, it makes me think of Syracuse a little bit. Yeah. So this is clearly Ed's new MO, is this Water Street busher who was specifically going after and mutilating sex workers. We see footage of him abducting a sex worker after asking about whether or not a John had been robbed at gunpoint recently. And then we get more footage of Cheryl repeating, you're my master, and it pleases me to serve you over and over. Kind of like a mantra at this point. It's like the thing Mm -hmm. that fills all of the dead space between her interactions with Ed. And we also hear him arriving in the background of this scene, presumably with that or a different kidnapped sex worker. And then this is also just sort of intermixed with footage of dead women. Yeah. Cool. Just dead women out in the field, like... Clearly he's going on a spree at this point, I guess, across the 90s. They they have very similar mutilations to their faces. It felt very Black Dahlia. Sort of, yeah. This kind of just almost felt like filler of just like, and he's also killing other women. Yeah, it did he's feel very He's killing sex workers because I guess no one's going to care about them in this like time period. Oh, we're going to get there. Trust me. Yeah. I had opinions. They're not revelatory opinions. I just got mad. Yeah. So we see this newly abducted uh, woman is like struggling in the basement and we hear Cheryl saying he's not going to like it. She should like stop fighting. Ed chastises her for this, puts the knife in Cheryl's hands, and we see Cheryl not particularly reluctantly kill this woman? Question mark? And then we get more of the 800 million FBI agents talking about most of these sex workers had been raped post-mortem. They've all been slit ear to ear. They have multiple bite marks, which are then sort of covered up with various degrees of dismemberment to hide them. And then we see FBI agents talking about the common practice of some serial killers, including Ted Bundy, of returning to the bodies to have sex with them after they've been murdered. Then we get an interview with Ted Bundy? Yeah. (laughs) Here, I was really confused. Uh, This is the point where I was like, wasn't Ted Bundy hella dead? He was convicted back in the 70s, and then he was finally executed in, I think, 89. That's correct. And so this, the the Jack Crawford looking guy is just like, years ago, I talked to Ted Bundy about this very case. And I was just like, fucking when? Like... So what we're getting here is that Ted Bundy is a time traveler. It's like <laughs> it's like that montage in the HBO Ted Bundy movie, but he's yeah, time oh traveling. God. Oh my fucking god, that movie. What a wild time. Oh my god. Was that Bundy? It was just called Bundy? Yeah, I'm trying to remember that movie. It's just called Bundy. That was such a fucking wild time. Anyway, 
Yeah, no, this doesn't really make sense, especially uh, that's compounded by the fact that this movie utterly fails to give us a sense of time. So Ted Bundy was definitely dead by the this time period that we are covering in the movie, which is like mid-90s. Yeah. So <laughs> he had to have either just talked to Ted Bundy about like the four murders that had happened, question mark, by 89. <laughs> We have no idea. We have no fucking idea. What did he talk to him about? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And Ted Bundy just says some shit about how, like, he's not going to stop. Yeah, you should cool. go check the we bodies because he's going to come back to fuck them. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. Ted, we know you taught us Thanks, that. Ted. Thanks. Yeah. We know. You hey, Ted. Gross, gross man. Ted, we know. Ted. I'm glad you're dead. Fuck you, Ted Bundy. Fuck you, Ted Bundy. There's our subtitle. <laughs> so the police heed Ted Bundy's mythological time-traveling advice. This this line confused me. They say that they're never fresh enough to get DNA samples, and I did not know if they meant that the corpses were no longer fresh enough or if Ed's semen was no longer fresh enough, and I didn't want to think about it too much. Yeah, it doesn't really track. I mean, like, we see a lot of these bodies recovered, like, still intact they haven't been uh skeletonized uh there's like one set of bodies that was like burned what skeletonized what is that not a word like decomposed yeah skeletonized. skeletal remains yeah isn't that a word i swear to god that's a word <laughs> it might if be. it isn't it is now no it's i just my word. i know it just seemed funny to me skeletonized <laughs> That makes me feel like somebody pointed a ray gun at them and it turned them into skeletons. Sometimes you become skeleton. This is how the skeleton army begins. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. I I am in favor of the usage of skeletonized. Me too. Um, And I I promise I'm not being bought off by big skeleton here. (laughs) (laughs) It is actually the CEO of Big Skeleton. (laughs) Oh, shit. No. Yeah. So... But anyway, yeah, that part didn't make sense to me either, because, like, you can still collect a DNA from a body long after, yeah. like, the fact. Yeah. It was just a whole thing, so. Yeah, but more bullshit, like, lingo that's thrown at us that really isn't in any way um, formed by science. Nope. Then we get this sequence of these two Girl Scouts showing up at Ed's house and offering to sell him cookies. Ed does some edge shit and invites them inside. They say they're not supposed to go into strangers' houses, and he says, well, that's okay, I'm a policeman. So they go inside his house, and I got so mad because that's actually really smart. Yeah. God damn it, Ed. Uh, he offers them sodas. We see them go into his living room, and there's, like, a weird covered table that we don't see other than, like, the table cover. Mm-hmm. He asks them some kind of leading questions. Did they ride their bikes? Did they tell their parents where they go when they're selling cookies? He asks them if they live nearby. They're kind of answering his questions and he's using this to gauge, am I going to kill these kids? Mm-hmm. I thought this scene was pretty unnerving. Yes, it was uh, very high tension. Yes. Like, I was, like, so worried about these poor little girls. Yes, but one of them does say that she told her parents where where she was going, and so... Yes, smart, smart kid. Ed kind of walks back his plan because this child is intelligent, and we hear, like, a muffled scream from the basement. And then I get some dialogue that, while I don't hate, 
it did make my eyes roll so hard into the back of my head I got a migraine, which was like Ed saying he doesn't think he can buy cookies today because there's a raccoon in the basement. Question mark. Question mark. I hate it when I have raccoons in my basement and I can't buy cookies. I know. Fucking raccoons. What's that? What? I thought I heard something. Oh, well, I, I left the TV on in the basement. Oh. You know, it sounds like I'm not going to be able to get cookies today. You know, I get a raccoon in the basement sometimes. There's no raccoons around here. <laughs> sure there are. Hey, do you want to see the raccoon I got in the basement? Sure. Well, he's awful mean. I don't believe you. I want to go. You know, I'll have to get cookies some other day. Why don't you let yourself out? So, yes, he says he can't buy cookies because there's a raccoon in this space in his basement, but then he offers to show them the raccoon? Yeah. 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 I got nothing. I wasn't sure what he was going for here because in one moment, it seems like he decides, like, all right, I got to take care of this. These kids got to get out. But maybe. But maybe I'll kill them anyway. Y'all want to see my my murder dungeon? Want to see my murder raccoon cookie dungeon? (laughs) My raccoon cookie dungeon. So he tells the girls to let themselves out. They do. And then Ed rips the tablecloth off of the quote unquote table. And we realize it's Cheryl who... Didn't tie something tight enough. Hint, it's it's a woman. She's going to yeah. get murdered. And that it got loose because Cheryl didn't tie it tight enough. So Ed blames and chastises her. And then we hear him go downstairs. Then we cut to FBI agent number 21,743,001. I'm just going to keep escalating the number of FBI <laughs> yeah, agents. Good. They say that by this time in the narrative, They have found 10 bodies with matching semen samples, and that at one victim's apartment, there was an unwashed glass of water with a fingerprint and saliva, and that the prints came back with a match for a Poughkeepsie police officer, Jim Foley. Jim is the partner of Joseph Danvers, who is another cop we've interviewed a couple of times at this point in the movie. They say that they investigated Jim and that they found blood stains in his house and car matching the victim's. And that they, this whole thing is weird. It's very vague and it's just like, it throws a bunch of shit at you very quickly so that it doesn't really have to, you don't think about it too deeply. We find out Jim basically doesn't have an alibi. He is a regular of local sex workers. And then we meet his son Hank really briefly who says that this whole thing ruined his life in one second. We get a bunch of footage of crime scene investigations overlaid with Cheryl repeating, you're my master and it pleases me to serve you, followed by footage of protests as we learn that Jim Foley was given the death penalty and convicted for the murders of these 10 people in 1996. We learn that the governor of New York denies him reprieve from his sentence on appeal and this ultimately confirms Foley will be put to death. Oh my gosh. And then we get a reenactment of his execution on September 9th, 2001, overlaid with the audio footage of the real execution and a bunch of footage from Ed's tapes and crime scene photos. Very, I was very confused by this because I was like, wait a minute, what about his DNA? His DNA wouldn't match. But then... And then... 
This goes into part six, which is called Missed One. This whole section starts with Joseph Danvers saying he gets a letter in his mailbox three days after Jim Foley's execution that says Missed One, and it includes a map. We're going to come back to that map in the next section. We get some more mixed footage, and then we get an interview with a medical technician who reports he was told to perform a DNA exam on a semen sample that turns up the same results as Jim Foley. And then they make this sort of like waved off suggestion that Jim Foley had gone to a fertility clinic and donated semen years before. And I feel like this is supposed to imply that somehow Ed came into possession of Jim Foley's semen sample and is using it to like frame this specific officer. It's wild. It's wild the leap of logic here that this serial killer decided literally at least 10 years ago to go to a fertility clinic, steal an officer's semen samples, and then use that on the bodies that he rapes and murders over the span of 10 years. Like, let's poke some holes in this, shall we? It is the wildest thing. Like, what? My first question is, if, if two people fuck a person and both of them do a come in them. It's not like one semen cancels out the other semen. (laughs) Like, maybe he was using condoms the whole time. True. But, like, that, I I don't know. It's You'd still still find other DNA. It is a lot of effort to frame this one person. You would have to be meticulously careful not to leave any of your own DNA on the body. And then make sure that the other person's DNA gets on it and it's a lot it's a lot for us to buy as viewers that like just because there's no motive here we're not given one there's no explanation as to like why this may have happened nope it was just that this one Poughkeepsie officer was targeted for this specific framing and it's great what what (laughs) what the thing is a, a really talented writer could have found ways to make this concept work if yeah. you used a much more condensed timeline that wasn't spanning like a decade and a half over the course of this film. If you maybe explained Ed worked at a fertility clinic, there are ways you could make this narrative work in the hands of a talented writer and like they are all just dropped like eggs. And Yeah, just... they don't matter. It's yet another pivot in the story that is supposed to tell us this man is the smartest man that's ever lived because he planned this for years and framed another man and executed him legally to quote one of the so-called experts. Yeah. Ugh. So... Basically, this whole semen extravaganza leads to... (laughs) Please never say semen extravaganza (laughs) around me ever again, or I will call the cops. (laughs) You will not call the cops. You hate the cops. Yeah, that's true. You'll call my parents. I'll call your parents. Chris said the bad thing. Um, You can call my brother and he'll yell at me. He'll be fine Okay, that's fair. So after this uh, cum party... (laughs) <laughs> okay after this ejacular spectacular god this no i'm gonna stick with that one after this okay. ejacular spectacular we basically find out that this leads to jim foley being posthumously cleared of his charges but the announcement of his clearing is made on september 12th 2001 
and that yeah. the news gets bumped from the front page of all of the national newspapers due to this little thing called September 11th happening. Yeah. Whoa. Like... Are we 9-11 shaming in this movie? Like... I don't even know. I don't even know. There's so much here. And this movie made me say, what? So many times by this point that it was just like, all right, I, this is another thing you're throwing at me that is utterly wild. Yep. And then we get to a line that in its truthfulness and veracity and frustrating reality, it made me almost throw my computer, which is when FBI agent 17 billion says, quote, when people read there's a serial killer in town, their guards go up, which was happening. But when they hear the serial killer only play preys on prostitutes, if you're not a prostitute, your defenses are going to go back down. So he created this Water Street Butcher persona to assuage people's fears about this serial killer so he could continue to prey on everyone else, end quote. Yeah. Which gross. is gross and true. And gross, it made me so mad. Gross and true and infuriating and like an attitude. You see it time and time again. An attitude from police that continues to this day. Like It's not just police. It's literally everyone, everyone who doesn't think sex workers are fucking people yeah. who are entitled to make a living doing the thing they're good at and enjoy doing. What's the phrase? It's like the less dead. When you see a sex worker dies, it somehow is less impactful than like a non-sex worker dying. It's yeah. terrible. It's fucking awful. I just like... Thanks for perpetuating that shit. Yeah, this is not the the podcast, and I am not the expert to talk about it, but like, hey, if you're listening to this and you don't think that sex workers are people and that sex work is real work that is entitled to the protection and benefits of any other type of employment, don't listen to our podcast. Yeah, we are pro-sex work here. Yes, we are pro-sex work, and if you're not, like, we are not here for you. Yeah. Thanks, bye. Straight up. So we get that quote, I throw my computer across the galaxy, and then we get footage where we hear Ed talking to a woman whose car has broken down. You hear her refer to him as officer, and you can tell from the way his camera is positioned, he is either in a police car or has repurposed a car to look like a police car because it has the cage that separates the front from the back of the car the same way a, a cruiser does. Mm -hmm. He offers her a ride and mentions, like, you shouldn't be out here alone because of the Water Street Butcher, circle jerk, hand job, masturbate. Yeah. She accepts, and to this particular point, she says, reaffirming what was said earlier, I thought he only attacked prostitutes. So he asks her to sit in the back of his cruiser, and she does. And then we have this delightful exchange, which preys on one of my biggest fears, which is he asks her why she called him officer. Oh, God. Yeah, this scene, there's a couple of scenes, and it's mainly, like, right before the abduction, where, like, women are realizing what's happening. And it's the most heart-in-your-throat thing. Yeah. I want this movie to be remade by, like, a woman director or a woman-identifying director. Yeah. Because there's a lot of potential here that could be really genuinely terrifying. Like, this is genuinely terrifying. Yeah. And, like, this is something growing up my mom always told me, which is if you get pulled over, you don't roll your window all the way down. You roll it down exactly enough so that you can hear the officer and you can pass them your information. Yeah. Because you have people like Ed who, you know, ask, why'd you call me officer? And you see this woman coming to the realization in real time that she just got into the back of a car with a man who is posing as a police officer yeah. and he says i'm not a cop she says that's not very funny he says i'm not trying to be he tells her he's the water street butcher and that she shouldn't get into strangers cars she begins to beg for her life she tries to get out of the car 
he glibly says, like, do you really think I would have left the handles on the back of the car? Like, He's such an asshole, and he's so, so like, full of himself, and so <laughs> I control you, I'm such a genius. But at the same time, he says shit like, didn't you learn about assumptions? They make an ass, ass out of, of you, you and, and me. me. And I laughed out loud at that line. Yep. And then he stops the car in what seems to be a wooded area. I'm pretty sure he gets out just to pee. Yes, he does. And I was like... What the fuck? Who are you? Who are you supposed to be? Like, are we supposed to be afraid of this person or laugh at him? Yeah. And I feel like that's where you get the masterful, except whatever is the antithesis of masterful diversion from this attempt to create a Hannibal Lecter is like, yeah. you know what Hannibal Lecter never did? Film himself getting out of and his car to in do the a bushes. Piss. Yeah. We also get this horrifying, like, line where he's like, hey, if you let me rape you, I'll <sighs> let you go. And she says, okay. She's like, yeah, okay. And he's like, I'm not that much of an idiot. You're gonna run. And I was just like, I hate, I hate everything. It's so shitty. I hate it. It's really shitty. But then we do get probably the most infamous scene from this movie, which is also mm -hmm. the trailer for this film. Yeah. We cut back to Ed's basement. We have a close-up on this woman's face. She has packing tape over her mouth. She is restrained. You can't really tell how, but it's clear she is. And then from around the corner in the background, Ed slow walks on all fours. He's got one mask on top of his head and then one over his face. And he's wearing just an all-black bodysuit, which has this really eerie, like, dehumanizing effect. He looks legitimately monstrous in this scene just because mm -hmm. of the way, weird way he's moving, the weird two-faced effect. And there's like weird droney music slash noise over the mm -hmm. scene, which is weird because this is supposed to be found footage. Yeah, right. But he basically creeps up from behind her, stands up slowly, and he has medical lancets on his fingers, which he buries into the side of her neck until she dies. This scene still holds up for me. Yeah, it it's a really good scene. It does fall prey to the, like, the very end. You see his face under his mask. And again, that rips away any sense of mystery or creepiness about him. And suddenly it's just like, again, I'm just looking at a pathetic fucking dude who's mm -hmm. abusing women. That was the part, this is the part in the trailer that I thought was, like, really creepy because of the very bizarre, like, body language and movements as he's, like, very slowly creeping across the room. And I thought that was going to be a lot more of what we would see in this movie is, like, a person who is basically no longer human and is preying upon people like a complete predator. Yeah. That's not really what we get. We get a guy in a mask, in a cape, who is shitty and full of himself and lords over the women that he abuses because he's probably an egomaniac, but it frustrates me a lot. <laughs> yeah. I guess I wish that this movie was either found footage in the vein of this yeah, or that it was a, a better made mockumentary, I guess I should yeah. say. I wish it picked. Yeah, me too. I was thinking too that if they had really committed to the Silence of the Lambs angle or the cold case files, clinical um, storytelling kind of situation, it would have been better either way. But this ended up being something in between. And something that I also found myself very frustrated by was the integrity of the found footage itself, like like you mentioned, there was music in the background of this one. But in previous scenes, the degradation to the film doesn't really make sense. And for me, it's like this was obviously added in post-production. Like this yeah. is 
an edit that makes it really hard for me to believe in comparison to be my cat which felt so authentic like the the comparison is so stark that this was so intentionally set up and staged and edited yeah that really did come across to me on this viewing in part i think because we just watched be my cat and it was like man if they just used an actual goddamn handy cam yeah they could have gotten the effect they wanted and the thing is even with a really good camera, if you fuck with a lot of the like internal settings on it, you can get the effect that they wanted here. You don't yeah. have to do a fucking filter on top of the footage. Yeah, like some of the the scenes were so badly like filtered and and degraded in post that I was like, there's no way like a 20-year-old VHS would look this bad unless it had been like sitting in fucking water or gone through a microwave. But these tapes we're led to believe have been sitting preserved in boxes for the police to find yeah why are they this badly damaged it doesn't make sense yeah but overall this scene still holds up for me yeah pretty good scene then we get fbi agent 78 billion four million three hundred thousand and one reading off the various profiles that have been ascribed to ed over time and it's like a bunch of different ideas as to his race his age whether or not this is his first crime whether or not he is any kind of differently abled whether or not he suffers from any kind of mental illness his education level his employment status and his occupation a lot of them posit he is a police officer this scene also had big like east area rapist vibes as well yeah and that takes us into part seven called found We go back to Joseph Danvers discussing that letter from after Jim Foley's execution and the map that came with it. He noticed that it was made on MapQuest, and I just put an exclamation point in a parentheses here. (laughs) (laughs) MapQuest. MapQuest. And he basically says that they found from MapQuest that there had only been one download of this particular map in the month it was printed, (laughs) and nothing dates this movie more. It's so 2000s, holy shit. Okay, I guess. Wow. I guess, but there are people alive today who do not know what that is. Mm -mm. And I felt ancient. Yeah. So then we cut to the leader of the SWAT team that raided Ed's house. We get footage of the raid itself. We get the 47 trillionth FBI agent saying, we didn't find him, just his house. We didn't find it. He gave it to us. He wanted us to find it. And then a different FBI agent, or possibly the same one, I don't know, because there have been trillions of them, saying that they didn't find a single fingerprint in the entire house Despite the fact you have seen Ed not wearing gloves and he Mm. doesn't look like he's gotten some fucking John Doe in seven cut off his fingertip situation going on. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get police footage from the analysis of the house, the discovery of the tapes, and they find a pine box uh, in his house. And we see them open it and find that Cheryl is alive. She is still in the dress and the mask and she is laying in this box utterly silent. It's almost as if she didn't want to be found. So that gives us an interview with Cheryl's mother, Victoria, discussing how she refused to move on, never accepted that her daughter might be dead. We get an interview with a physician discussing the extent of Cheryl's torture, which included the removal of at least five teeth, broken bones that had not been allowed to heal, and that had been aggravated by the use of ligatures. She was incredibly malnourished, which affected the functionality of most of her organs, and she had endured sexual torture, including various types of genital mutilation. 
Uh, we learned that her injuries then worsened while she was in the hospital because, quote, she no longer knew how to exist if not through horrific pain. Yeah, bullshit. I don't, I don't. That's not how bodies no. work. That's not how that works. Like, I've known people who live with chronic pain my entire life, and that's not how that works. Yeah. <laughs> like, we'll talk about Stockholm Syndrome in about 45 seconds. That's not how bodies Bullshit. work. Bullshit. Bullshit artist. Yeah, bullshit artist. So we then get an interview with Cheryl Dempsey. She is hollow, emaciated. The subtitle under her name calls her a victim. Yeah. Uh, and this interview is harrowing in that she repeatedly kind of implores the people who are making this documentary to tell her what to do. She says she doesn't know what they want her to say. We can tell that she basically doesn't know how to function without being prompted or commanded, specifically the command of her master. I don't know. I don't know what you want me to say. Talk about what it's like being home again. I don't know. What do you want me to say? You had to be nice seeing your mom again after all that stuff. Maybe. I don't know what you want me to say. What was the man who lived at all She basically, life? at the end, says she doesn't want to do the interview anymore because she doesn't know what they want her to say or do. She's clearly uncomfortable. We get this shot where she goes to scratch her head and we see Why? that she is missing a hand. I don't know what you want me to she say. says her master loved her ultimately and that he didn't want to leave her and that one day he's going to come back and take her away. And the interview ends, and we learn that two weeks later, Cheryl killed herself and left a note declaring her undying love for her master. This is where we realize that the footage we saw at the beginning of the film of a corpse being abducted was Cheryl's. And we get some news footage that discusses the desecration of her grave, and some more mixed footage of the gazillionth FBI officers speculating regarding Ed's whereabouts. One mentions that the sequential numbering of the tapes revealed that there were 27 missing, and he sort of speculates about what's on them, whether or not it was too personal or too revealing. It literally doesn't matter. Yeah. And then we get this quote from one of the FBI agents, and this is an exact quote. I'll tell you one place we'll be watching. If this documentary thing you're making ever gets to theaters, he won't be able to help himself. He'll see this movie as many times as he can. We'll keep our eye on as many screenings as we can because he'll be there, end quote. And this leads into why, despite everything, I think that there is a brilliance to this movie. Mm -hmm. And it was not intentional. That brings us to the end of the Poughkeepsie tapes. Uh, the only exception is that there is a post-credit scene where we see Ed torturing a woman. Okay. Well, it's whatever. Yeah. We get this quote at the end about how if this gets to theaters, that is how we will catch him. So, the Poughkeepsie tapes premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in May of 2007. It was scheduled for a theatrical release by MGM on February 8, 2008. The film was removed from the release schedule despite the use of promotional advertising. Like I said before, this previewed in front of The Mist, which was a pretty major release at the time mm -hmm. in 2007. This makes that last line really horrifying to me because it never made it to theaters. And so while I in no way think it was intentional because you don't make a goddamn feature-length movie with the hope it doesn't make it to theaters, yeah. 
the fact that it didn't does a thing that Be My Cat did a hundred times better, where we have now totally obliterated the line between viewer and participant Mm -hmm. in something. And I think that is cool as shit. And on top of that, this movie basically existed solely as a bootleg online Mm -hmm. until it was released for video on demand in 2014 and then pulled again. And then it was finally released on Blu-ray and DVD by Scream Factory in 2017. Okay. So between about 2007 and 2014, which is when I saw this movie the first two times, and I have the bootleg, so I should actually go back and watch it because the bootleg is not the final cut of the film. Yeah, I heard it was the rough cut. Yeah, I should have done it before we filmed or recorded, but I'm going to go back and watch it and I will report back on any like really noticeable differences. Yeah, the notes that I saw were mostly that like the the audio was not as good. Yeah, so I'll take a peek. But because this existed solely as a bootleg, because there's so and still to this day so little information about this movie and because it never made it into theaters and you have that last line, it really feels... Like, I can understand why Chris, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, thought this movie was this really horrifying piece of found footage art. Mm-hmm. Because it was really sort of coincidentally presented as such. Yeah. It also very much reminded me of Nine Inch Nails' Broken movie, which was also seen and misinterpreted as a snuff film when it first came out in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And so it, it had that mystique that really attracted me to it. Yeah, I was going to say that too, that I think if I had seen it closer to the time it was made, if I had seen it like 10 years ago, I probably would have been able to buy in more. Because I, at that point, I had not consumed as much media about true crime. I hadn't consumed as much like found footage films. And I just knew a lot less to tip me off of the the tropes that it was using and the various real life cases it was using and recognizing that that end point as like definitely being a meta point. So, uh, Donna, did you like the Poughkeepsie tapes? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it was not what I expected. And like I said, if I had seen this 10 years ago, I probably would have liked it. But... It didn't really work for me, honestly. It just, it really missed the mark. I could see what it was going for, but ultimately just like kind of being left with no information about the killer and no redemption or salvation whatsoever for Cheryl or anyone he affected. It was just like, all right, that's it. We just get to sit with the fact that this shitty bitch ass dude got to kill and abuse a bunch of women with no recourse fucking sucks man (laughs) i i mean i said it literally in our last episode i thought this was the other best found footage movie i had ever seen Mm -hmm. and i have to be honest i really think i had like significant nostalgia filter on yeah again in part because of when i saw it i Like you said, I knew less about true crime and the way our police systems work and operate. I had that sort of, like, love of the broken movie sort of floating in the background. Yeah. I had the circumstances under which the film was released that definitely contributed to the the mystique that surrounded this film. But it just doesn't hold up. Yeah. 
It is for sure a product of its time. Yeah. <laughs> so Even on a technical level, yeah. like the amount of shaky cam and filtering, like yeah. you mentioned before, are bad. It's very bad. I also I was I was telling Emily about this earlier. I remembered this movie being a lot edgier, and I thought I remembered much more of the depravity that you hear about actually being on screen as opposed to off. Mm-hmm. And I think if this was the movie I remembered, I could have at least given the credit for going whole hog. Yeah. But it's not. You don't get that much gore. You don't get a lot of the, you know, things we don't necessarily need to see, but that I thought we did. Yeah. Which I am not advocating for, but I think I remembered this movie differently than it actually is. And because of that, it's just very underwhelming now. It is. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. Um, and a lot has changed in filmmaking over the last 10 years, especially in the found footage genre. And I'm curious to see, like, to plot the points of his other movies about when they were made, when they came out, and if they are pretty much the progression of how he improves as a filmmaker. Because As Above, So Below was a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked that movie, and I wasn't expecting to. That was one where I had to basically be convinced to watch it, because I typically do not like found footage. Yeah. She says, having a <laughs> uh, Oops. <laughs> <laughs> oops. Do you have any hot takes? Not necessarily. Like, this isn't really a hot take movie. I Like I said, I think this was just a guy who obviously is familiar with serial killers american serial killers and their mo's and wanted to create something like silence of the lambs in a found footage style i don't think there is anything much more to be read of this than that i don't really have hot takes either i just kind of have to throw away thoughts one is that to this film's credit between the sort of development hell it lived in for almost 10 years and the fact it existed online almost exclusively as a bootleg presented as a very real film there's an uncomfortable number of people who think this movie is real if you look yeah. up the Poughkeepsie tapes a lot of the google results that come back are like is this real to its credit i don't think any other film has really done that except for maybe blair witch in a mm-hmm. very long time yeah and again i don't think that was intentional i think it's very much an effect of happenstance but it it is kind of cool Yeah, I do think that is cool, especially of the time, like, again, in the 2000s, a lot of, like, true crime shows looked like this. Yeah. And then what is my slightly more critical hot take, especially as somebody who has a degree in journalism? The buy-in for this film requires you, like, looking past the fact that no news station, even in our modern-day 24-7 news cycle, would air this documentary if it were real. Yeah. It's not presented as live TV. It is a 48-hour style deep dive into a very specific case. And if you've ever watched a 48 Hours or an I Survived or a Cold Case Files, they're not going to show you the shit that is in this movie. And so that takes me out of the film. Yeah. In that, like, they would have had to cut so much footage here. They would have had to use different things. Mm-hmm. There's facts and information in here that would not be used. It was just one of those things where I was like, y'all, I didn't need my NPR internship to tell you that this is not good. Yeah. Yeah, for real. I, I would like to think that a lot of people at large have matured in the last 10 to 15 years in terms of being critical about what they consume and critical about what bills itself as a true story. Yeah. Or what just, like, implores you you to assume its reality 
we live in a much different time than 2007, but I don't know. It's hard to say because also, like, we've talked about Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, and I knew nothing about those series of crimes until a couple of years ago. I honestly didn't know about them until I'll Be Gone in the Dark blew up. Yeah. And now I know too much about them. Way too Ah! much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It keeps me up at night sometimes. Yep. Yep. So. Yeah, I don't know why that reminds me of, there was like one winter, my mom and I both had the stomach flu and like she was home from work and I was home from school and my dad used to keep a garage door opener, this was fucking stupid, next to our front door because he, for his job, received packages daily Mm -hmm. and a lot of them like could not be left on the doorstep either due to their weight or their worth. This makes my dad sound like he is a trafficker of some sort, but he is not. So we you had sure? this garage door opener to the to the left of our front door. So we were both homesick and some guy like stole it and opened our garage door and I remember like opening the garage and there was just a dude standing in the garage. Oh my god. Yeah, and uh I hate that. That's a thing that happened. And like my mom and I didn't sleep that night. Yeah, no. Yep. That's terrifying. Jesus. Yeah. Fuck. So on our one to five scale, <laughs> uh, where one is immediately watchable, two is proceed with caution, three is gird your loins, four is content warning minefield, and five is where we're going, you won't need eyes, where would you put the Poughkeepsie takes? I would say two, proceed with caution. It's not that bad. It's not that gory. There's some upsetting content... But it's not, it was not at all as bad as I expected. Yeah, I am in full agreement. I would put this at a two. Like we talked about, most of the really depraved stuff that gets referenced is only referenced, which is great. Yeah, don't Uh, have to deal with our eyeballs seeing those things. Yeah, I am increasingly of the opinion, like, most of the time we probably don't need to see sexual assault or pedophilia on screen. Yeah, fully agree. Ah! Please don't. Yeah. I would agree with you on a two. Would you recommend this movie? Nah. (laughs) I'll pass. I'll hard pass on this one. I would recommend Be My Cat over this movie because that's a really good found footage film. And in this one, it's just like, all right, I get what you're trying to make me think here. Like, I get it's very obvious. I agree. Unless you can just erase everything we've told you about this movie and go into it with the understanding (laughs) that this is presented as a documentary and pretend it's real like it's really hard to recommend this because me my cat does everything it tries to do so much better this isn't really a a necessary watch i would say watch the trailer just watch the trailer like by itself honestly yeah that's on that's all you need honestly it's uh the best you're gonna get out of this one well i don't have any final thoughts do you (laughs) my final thoughts are fuck ted bundy and (laughs) fuck every serial killer that took a life fuck that shit fuck you also if you're one of those people who commented on fucking amazon that you wanted to be <laughs> like ed you oh my can God. just fuck off hey shadow dweller I hey shadow hope, dweller i hope you didn't become a master quote-unquote you fucking weird dickhead gross yeah. fucking no gross unacceptable donna and i are alluding to an actual amazon review yeah of this film yeah god i hate men yeah it's, it's just like you could just be thrown off this planet jettison you into another realm of existence because we don't want you here yep you can live with salvador dali in the fucking yeah, hole exactly 
Well, Donna, what are we watching next week? Um, I'm pretty sure by the time that episode goes up, it will be April. And what better time to get into blasphemous movies than in April? So I'm going to do Antichrist. Ooh, boy! Hold on to your genitals. It's our first Lars von Trier! (laughs) It is our first Lars von Trier film on the list. Not the last. Note, I don't like Lars von Trier. (laughs) I think it's probably worth saying neither of us like Lars von Trier. I think I enjoy, for lack of a better word, his films more than you do. Yeah, probably. I tend to want to consume a Lars von Trier, and I... Oh, man. We're gonna do Nymphomaniac at some point, and I have got opinions. I actually, like, legitimately enjoy Antichrist, so I'm excited to watch it again, and I guess, like the Poughkeepsie tapes, find out I actually hate it. <laughs> let's let's find out. This is another one that we've uh, bonded over a little bit because um of the talking fox that says yeah. chaos reigns. Chaos. Chaos reigns. You know I'm gonna insert that sound clip like eighty <laughs> times in that episode, right? I expect no less. Cool. Well, on that note, hey friends, thank you so much for hanging out with us while we dunked on a movie I thought I loved. <laughs> It's my fault. I'm sorry. I was just like, what the fuck is this shit? It's not your fault. I'm the one who said we should watch it and shatter all of my illusions of loving this movie. (laughs) So cool. Hey, thanks so much for sharing some of your time with us, some of your ears with us. Oh, (laughs) delicious. But for real, life is weird and strange right now, and it means a lot to us that you would dedicate some of your time, even if it's time when you're, like, taking a shit or vacuuming, (laughs) to hang out with us while we talk about weird movies. Yeah. Uh, We would appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular. You know, we're not doing this to make money, we're not doing this for fame, but... We do reach more ears and more people when we get ratings on Apple Podcasts in particular. That is the easiest way for us to get on some charts and be discovered by more people and make more friends like yourself. So if you can take, you know, a minute, leave a review, leave a star, preferably more than one, but, you know, you do you, we would love that. And also maybe share us with your family. Uh, maybe your chippy or your your bippy <laughs> or your pepperoni your pep pep uh you can email us info at shitlesspod.com i wanted to give a shout out to our friend emrys for recommending the film gummo and our friend thorn for recommending the skin i live in i can tell you gummo was already on our list and i will add the skin i'm in skin i live in to our list as well thank you both yes. so much for reaching out recommending some fucked up shit thank you Follow us for updates and news on social media. We are at shitlistpod, S-H-T-L-S-T, pod, on Instagram and Twitter, and we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash S-H-T-L-S-T. Filth is our politics. Filth is our life. Donna, thanks for being my best friend. Yay! Thanks for being my best friend. Thanks, and wear a fucking mask! Wear a mask!